0: So the question we're asking is, did we all miss something here? And I'm not talking about something small, I'm sure we've missed small things all over. I'm talking about something really big. In a pretty unlikely place, we may have come across the most detailed map of the human mind that's out there. One that not only describes patterns and thoughts and feelings, but that also catalogs where those thoughts and feelings come from and why. We may also be looking at a vast, straightforward, point-by-point description of what happens to our consciousness after death, and a blueprint for why life unfolds in the way that it does, meaning stuff like why bad things happen and what we should focus on to thrive in life. And if that's not enough for you, we just might also have a clear description of the details of God. Wait, don't leave, I know. It sounds crazy. I wouldn't have believed it either. But after you spend some time in it, you can't help but get this sense of, wait, what is this? Is it true? Does it work? Well, that's what we're here to find out. Stay tuned. Welcome to the show. If this is your first time here, uh, we will work hard to make you regret that decision as little as possible. We'll walk you through how everything goes. My name is Curtis Childs, and I'm the host, and I'm with the Swedenborg Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization that puts on programs like this one uh, for the purposes of getting Swedenborg's material out there. That may be a meaningless phrase for you now, but hopefully we'll educate our, all of us on it as we move through. If this brings up questions, and this even, even though this show is supposed to be like an intro overview, there's a lot of material in here. If something's not making sense, if you want to hear about something more, if you're watching live, get your questions in. If you're watching in post, just write them as a comment, we'll try to get to you. And uh, hopefully everyone will leave, you know, as satisfied as possible. So let's get into it. We're gonna begin with what I believe is probably the first question someone would ask when they saw the title of our show. So here's part one. I mean, the show is called Swedenborg and Life. And if this was my first time coming across it, my first question would probably be something along the lines of What is a Swedenborg? I mean, I know what life is. And what? but what's this other thing? Is it is it like some kind of country Star Trek situation? If you go to, and to set a scene for this, I'm going to tell you about some statues. If you go to the Toria, or however you actually pronounce that, park in Stockholm, and you look around, you're going to see a bust of this guy in a wig whose name is Swedenborg. And if you zoom out from there and hop just ever so slightly across the Atlantic Ocean, flying over the dark blue water, and end up in Chicago, specifically in Lincoln Park, you're going to see a bust there, same wig, same guy, it's Emanuel Swedenborg. And if you were to zoom out then from Chicago and just look at the city plan, the way that the roads and everything are laid out, that's influenced directly by Swedenborg. Daniel Burnham, the guy who uh, designed the whole thing, overtly says, yeah, this is based on Swedenborg's material. So what does that mean, and what is it? And also, if you're going to look at probably one of the most famous human rights champions uh, in, in their last century or so, Helen Keller, right, she released a pamphlet that was called, How I Would Help the World, or an essay, but why, why is Helen Keller saying that she already helped the world. What's in here that could be more helpful? It's actually all about Swedenborg and what he wrote and how she could share this with the world to help it, coming from someone who spent her entire life drastically helping the world. Even American folk hero Johnny Appleseed, that guy who walked around and planted apple trees, he was based on an actual guy named John Chapman who would walk around handing out, yeah, apples, but also books by Emmanuel Swedenborg. So who is this Swedenborg that he keeps popping up in all these places? Actually, I think that the real story is not why is he in so many places? It's why isn't he in more places? Because if you look at who he is, you have to ask what happened? Like what why with the trajectory he was on, how successful he was as a scientist and all that, why don't we know about why isn't about him more? Why isn't he taught in textbooks and that kind of thing? Well, We're going to play a little clip from an intro to Swedenborg video that the Foundation released a little while ago, and in there I think we're going to start to get some clues as to why Swedenborg was headed in this direction of being famous for his discoveries and achievements and almost disappeared from
1: public consciousness. So here's a little more about who Swedenborg is. Hi, I'm Jonathan Rose, series editor of the New Century edition of the works of Emanuel Swedenborg. So maybe you've heard or read something interesting about this Immanuel Swedenborg and you want to know more. Well, perhaps the most basic thing you should know, just for purposes of light conversation, is that Swedenborg was an 18th century Swedish scientist, philosopher, and theologian. Born 1688, died 1772. The next thing you should probably know is that he was brilliant. He was what people call a universal genius, a polymath, a renaissance man, ahead of his time. For instance, he was a submarine designer before there was such a thing a psychologist 140 years before Freud, an aeronautical engineer 190 years before the Wright brothers. He was a mathematician, geologist, metallurgist, mineralogist, crystallographer, anatomist, botanist, chemist, physicist, cosmologist, astronomer. I'm not making this up, this is very well documented. He was an author, inventor, legislator, mining engineer, economist, editor, a poet, and a musician. He came up with the first rational design for flight and made anatomical discoveries that were well ahead of their time. He published 14,000 pages and left another 28,000 pages in manuscript. So he was one of those types. But perhaps the most important but also controversial thing about him was that he claimed that in his mid-50s he had a spiritual awakening that opened the afterlife to him while he was still alive in this world.
0: I'm sorry, what did you say? a spiritual awakening that opens the afterlife to him while he's in this world. Here we may have a clue of why the, the the brilliant scientist Swedenborg has fallen out of public perception. If somebody says they have a spiritual experience, I want to know, what are you talking about? What does that mean? What does it mean to see the afterlife? So we actually caught up with Dr. Jonathan Rose and asked him, what is this thing that happened to Swedenborg and how did it happen? Here's what he had to say.
1: The first thing that started to happen was that his dream life his sleep changed we don't know exactly what was going on but he uses this term of it that's called preternatural sleep it's sort of like our word supernatural preter means sort of beside or it's it it was like it was non normal sleep and I don't know exactly what he means by that but he uses that term a number of times Uh, ...it was obvious that he was having intensely vivid dreams. He was having a sense of a presence. I think he was very lucid in his dreams at that time. And he started to feel that those dreams had tremendous meaning. And this was sort of disrupting his... He was still working on his book during the day... ...but like, what is going on? He didn't know what was going on. Then it entered a second phase... ...where he was having waking visions at night most powerfully on april 6th of 1744 he had a vision of jesus christ that was he was just thunderstruck but he he was wide awake he saw jesus jesus asked him do you have a clean bill of health and um this seemed to open another level like Yes, he was interested to know about everything, but he wasn't expecting to meet Jesus personally. You know, that that wasn't on the menu. He, he didn't understand that that's where this thing might be going. After that, he started to have interactions with people who had passed on, his brother Eliezer, his father Jesper, who had died in some years before. A third phase that happened in there, and uh, it's pretty clear that this happened in late April of 1745, was that he shifted into daily, waking, continual conversations and interaction, not just sort of somebody reacting to his thoughts, but having whole long conversations. He says sometimes for days on end, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months of interactions with people who used to live here in this world, people from his own time, people he had known, people from long ago like Cicero or Jesus' disciples or whoever, you know. He was having these long interactions with people in the spiritual world and was learning a tremendous amount.
0: So coming out of all that visioning and conversationing, (laughs) just making up words on the fly here, uh, and learning that he was going through, it may have seemed a bit random at the beginning, but there started to emerge this imperative, that this was all headed somewhere, and Dr. Rose commented on that.
1: Swedenborg was the kind of person who as soon he like one of the things that just drove him was he loved to learn things and then publish them let the people know about it he'd been doing this since he was young so when he started having these experiences it was very clear to him that he of all things he'd ever known he needed to publish this once he had these daily interactions with spirits and angels he says that that continued for him from April 1745 to the time of his death in March of 1771. The rest of his life on the planet was dominated by these experiences. He distributed his works. He published them in the premier area of London for this kind of publishing at that time and distributed them far and wide all over Europe. He really wanted to get a conversation going about these things. He felt that it was extremely important. What he was being shown, he felt was a new revelation
0: and this was something that was important to him changed the trajectory of his life. I mean, especially his publishing life, he stopped work on his scientific volumes, began to publish this, whatever you want to call it, theological, uh, spiritually based, supernatural material uh, from then on to the end of his life. And if you're gonna... so what happened? Why isn't Swedenborg famous uh, for, for scientific stuff? If you go around saying, uh, spirits and angels talk to me and I've, I've seen the afterlife, and you lose favor in some circles. I think a lot of people wrote him on off uh, as crazy, and that's why he sort of dropped out. Um, We want to give him a second shot here. Uh, The the, the potential of the material he wrote, if you go in and look at it, he's covering all the major facets of reality and giving you at least two or three deeper layers of meaning on all of them. He's giving you essentially the secrets of reality. Uh, And if those end up being even partially accurate, We got something really, really valuable here. So we want to go in, what we're going to do in this show is take a look, see, does this match up with life? Does this match up with experience? Is there anything tangible, provable about it? Can this help the human race? So we're going to take a look there. We want you to come on the journey with us. It may be... That, that we already lost you. That this is too much. This guy heard spirits talked about it. This has got to be just like the imaginations of a fanciful or sick mind, right? If so, you may want to check out our episode, Was Swedenborg Crazy?, where we took a longer, more in-depth look at was he showing symptoms of mental illness? Uh, is there a m- m- more plausible explanation for why he did all that stuff? So take a look there if you'd like to. Are you still with us? If so, yeah, let's take this journey now, and I'm going to tell you the basics as far as we can. It's like we're trying to cram into, you know, 50 minutes or so, the, the, the summary of everything. So we're going to be flying through things, but we're going to do our best to give you at least a starting point on all these. So we're going to begin with perhaps the, the thing he's most famous for covering in part two. <laughs> If you were forced to, and this would be a terrible exercise, try to sum up everything in Swedenborg in three words, it'd probably be, life goes on. Even though that's not the core of the message, that is what people began to know him for. There's so much of it, stuff about what lies beyond is is all through his works, and it was a big part of how he learned everything, as you heard in the previous section. But the the what lies beyond wasn't this sort of obscure where we may head beyond the veil. To him, he was like taking day trips there. He was going there, interacting with people in you know, using what we now call out of body travel or, or spiritual travel all the time on a daily basis, and he would come back using his scientifically trained mind and his attention to detail and meticulously record, these, these are the phenomena there, these are the conditions that make those phenomena possible there, this is what it means for us. And so he gives this very, very um, almost mundane, at times, description of, of how everything works there and why it does and what we can expect. We did a series of videos that were very short called The Swedenborg Minute, where we went through some of the basics of what he wrote down. And here's a little clip that we made about the afterlife, which just gives us a little bit of context for for some of the major differences between here and there. So here's what we made. Based on what he claimed was 29 years of being able to visit there at will, Swedenborg had a lot to say about what the afterlife is like. I don't even really know where to start. Well, for one thing, he said that everything's more vivid there. Your senses are sharper, the colors are beautiful, and actually, there are some colors there that don't exist here. Yeah, I don't even know how to imagine that. Like, how could there be another color? Don't we have all the possible colors here? Another thing he says is that there, if you want to, you can communicate your thoughts directly to people. And you can actually spontaneously display images as a dual means of getting your point across. So if I was describing an okapi to you, you'd be able to pick one out at the zoo. He says that the communication is so deep and so precise there that you can communicate entire concepts at once. You can say in a minute what would take us an hour here. Also, there's no such thing there as inner beauty. We all just look like we really are inside. So if I'm a really ugly, nasty person, it'll show. But if I'm a kind and lovely person, Silly. And we made that video just like a couple years ago. I swear I look fourteen years younger in it. So those are some of the differences there, but there are similarities as well. That actually you may be more struck by the similarities between here and there. So let's let's take a trip there right now. You wanna do it? Let's wake up in the spiritual world. What would it be like? The first thing we might notice is that there's terrain. You know, there is land, there there are even plants and animals like we remember, you know, like like here. Some things obviously are a bit different depending on where you are, but it's recognizable. And what we are like is recognizable as well. We have this form, this shape, this human, human-like form, just like we've always had. And then we're there, say, and we start to get this feeling of, I really want to see what's on top of that hill over there. I'm really feeling drawn to it. I'd like to go there. All right, well, let me start. And then suddenly you're there. And there, there are these people, and they're, they're like people, but they're just way beyond anything you've ever experienced. There's this love pouring out of them, this wisdom. They're able to speak and show you things in this amazing way, and you feel at home with them, and you feel cared for, and you feel known. It's just like nothing that you've been through before. And that is the path that we that we start to walk down in the spiritual world, as Swedenborg refers to it. He, he has terminology, spiritual world, world of spirits, we'll get into all this stuff in a minute, but for some people it's almost not even about when you're wondering about life after death. It's not really what's there, it, it's who's there, and it specifically are the people that we care about going to be there, and Swedenborg comments on it in Heaven and Hell 494. I just said, in Heaven and Hell 494. This is a book Swedenborg wrote called Heaven and Hell, it was his most popular book. You can click on this and download it for free, read the whole thing yourself, or or expand on this if you'd like to. For now, we'll see little things he wrote about different subjects, quote by quote. As soon as we arrive in the other life, we are all recognized by our friends and relatives, and by people we have known in one way or another. Further, we talk with each other and continue to see each other in keeping with our friendship in the world. I have heard many people who had just come from the world overjoyed to see their friends again, and their friends overjoyed that they had arrived. It often happens that married partners meet and welcome each other joyfully." And even to say joyful is probably understated, if you think about just how cool it would be. To somebody who you thought was gone, to see them again, get to see they're alive, and they're more alive than they've ever been, and so are you, and we're just in this amazing place. And I also noticed in that quote, it seems to indicate the survival of relationships, friendships, even marriages, continuing into the afterlife. And Swedenborg did say that a lot of what we start here in this world can, if we wanted to, and if it's right, continue on, you know, in, in the world to come. I want to go back to, first of all, the title of that book. You may wonder, wait, Heaven and Hell? You know, what? what's that? Is, that seemed kind of heavenly where we were, but is there hell as well? What's he talking about? And yeah, he does describe, he uses a lot of Christian terminology to describe the afterlife. However, he's often meaning things that are different than the conventional meanings of these terms. So we're going to dis- get into a little bit. What is he talking about with heaven and hell? And I want to start with that movement principle. You remember back we were in this video, we were looking at this hill, and as soon as we had a desire to go there and started to make an effort, we just went there at the speed of thought. We went there, and he said that actually that is based on that ability to travel, uh, based on what you want and travel instantaneously, is a principle that creates all of the the geography, if you will in the afterlife, it creates all the layout of where people go, it creates these divisions that we call heaven and hell. And we did another one of our short Swedenborg minutes about what heaven and hell are, because as always, as you'll find in Swedenborg, when he's using terms that you think you know what they mean, he means something slightly different, or when you dig into it, very different by them. But here's the basics of heaven and hell through a Swedenborgian lens. For people that think heaven and hell exist, there are basically two theories that they are locations in an afterlife, like, oh, I'm in heaven, or that they're states of mind, oh, I'm in hell. Swedenborg comes down decisively on the side of both. Heaven is the mindset you'd expect. Loving other members of the human race, the joy of helping them, the peace of not craving things, community, camaraderie. Hell is selfishness. Obsessing, despising other people, trying to hurt or take things from them, and the frustration, isolation, and misery that that brings. But after we die, we naturally grab toward like-minded people. So people who are altruistic and compassionate come together and create communities that are heaven, while people who are spiteful and revenge-seeking make each other's life hell. So we got to start there, right? It's, this, it's a state of mind that causes an external reality. The, the spiritual world kind of works in reverse of this one, in that way. That here, what's around us can really affect how we're feeling. There, how we're feeling and thinking affects what's around us. And it can pull be a powerful enough for us. It's sort of like spiritual gravity, if you will. It can pull people together and create communities and create whole lifestyles. And eventually these uh different areas that are that are opposed to each other enough that they can merit the names heaven and hell. But it's important to note that According to Swedenborg, Heaven is, is open to all. It's not, well, in a certain sense. It's not, uh, you have to have the right religion to get into it. Here he describes it in his book, Heaven and Hell, 415. Heaven includes everyone who has lived a good life since the very beginning of our planet. A good life not meaning, like, this is the good life of everyone who got rich or got ahead. Good life meaning cultivating that mindset of heaven, like learning to prioritize and love to the best of our ability, or at least wanting to make an effort towards some kind of empathy, some kind of standing with fellow human beings, some kind of, oh, I realize that my needs need not eclipse the needs of other people. That creates heaven. And so heaven doesn't matter what your religious background is, if you have that as some kind of core principle for you, you are going to have a mindset that's compatible with heaven. And then we we draw ourselves into community based on what we love. We're going to read a little more about that. This is his book, Divine Providence, number 338. Again click on it, download it. I have explained that each of us is her or his own love, and that none of us can live anywhere but with people whose loves are like ours and if we do visit others we cannot breathe in our own life note swedenborg is now using the term love in a way that we're not accustomed to using it his is his or her own love that doesn't mean like your romantic partner or something that means is his or her own way of caring about the world, the deepest priority or goal in your life is called your love, and I think we'll get to that a little bit more. Anyway, so we have to be with people who have some kind of similar deepest principles. This is why after death we all begin to associate with people whose loves are like ours. We recognize them as relatives and friends, and strange as it may seem, when we meet and see them it is as if, as though we had known them from childhood. It is our spiritual likeness and friendship that causes this. And even says it it feels like family relationships on it, you can feel like oh, this this person is like my brother or my sister because we have such a a kin, kinship of of purpose is the best way i could put it. Now there is a huge variety in the way people approach life, in what they care about, in what they prioritize, in what they act on. And this creates this sort of striation that, that Swedenborg describes. Here's a diagram, if we're talking about this too much. Let's break it up into... this is the, the heavenly hellish spectrum. In the middle there, you see where it says, World of Spirits. That is the place we all go initially in the afterlife. This is a neutral place where you are free to um, act on your impulses and kind of sort out who do you want to be, who are you really, and what do you gravitate towards. If you gravitate up, you'll see that there's different levels of heaven. And what this means is levels of opening the mind to this higher love and wisdom and and becoming more and more of of a a selfless... um, altruistic being, going all the way up to like almost being able to grasp things in a way that that we can't now, and and have this overwhelming love for everyone. That's where we all want to try to head towards. Well, I say we all want to, but nobody's forcing anyone to want anything. There are some people who probably don't have any interest in what I just described, and they get to go more and more external, or more down, where we see these the outermost level there, which is kind of like this superficial sensory level falsity, evil, we get deeper and deeper into antagonism towards other human beings. That is what you could call hell. Now, it's not actually a planet like it there, you know, it's not actually a globe, so you can think of it in a lot of different ways. We had a person who was standing up or upside down, that's another good analogy for what's going on here, the inmost being the heart and lungs, then getting more and more external. Anyway, there's a lot of different ways that you can look at it, and that's just the very, very beginnings of heaven and hell. Do you notice how we're just flying through stuff like this? But don't worry, we're gonna give you some references to go explore more on your own if you'd like. There's something very interesting, though, that this heaven and hell dynamic brings up. Whatever we think about, does it exist in the afterlife, we know that we deal with the two mindsets here on earth. I mean, we've all had the experience of being very in very good state of mind, in a very happy place in life, and in a very miserable one, probably you've had touches of each just today, right? That is, according to Swedenborg, because there's something going on that he well he doesn't call it this, but it can be called the struggle for the mind. There is this clash of the forces of heaven and hell all the time, and it shows up in our psyche. And this is how it works. So say we're walking down a path, just like a regular path, and we're having a regular day. You know, we're walking along, thoughts come to us, positive and negative, maybe we're thinking life is good, it f- makes us feel good, or this, thoughts are trying to break us down, break us apart. According to Swedenborg, heaven is pumping into those good thoughts, and hell is pumping into those bad thoughts, and they're both trying to pull us toward them. But because it just shows up as thoughts and feelings, we just kind of walk past and keep working on our day. But we, just there, you've touched heaven and hell. And you're, you've, you're gonna do it a couple times during this show, you've done it all throughout the day-to-day, interacting with heaven and hell is something that happens all the time. And it's a lot more dramatic behind the scenes than it ends up being for us, according to what Swedenborg saw. This is his Secrets of Heaven 5036, so this is one of his long series of books that, that goes up quite high, tons of cool information in there. He's talking about times of trial, or, 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 you know, um, times of mental and spiritual anguish that we go through. Times of trial occur when we are actively regenerating. That's spiritual growth. We're going to talk about that in a minute. No one can be reborn without undergoing trial. And they are brought about by the evil spirits around us. Not not on a physical level, but on a spiritual level. When they notice that angels are guarding us from inside, they stir up the distorted thoughts we have had and the wrongs we have done, but the angels defend us from within. This fight is what we perceive as a trial, but so dimly that we can hardly tell it is not simple anxiety. So at least some of human anxiety is in fact the outermost shocks of this inner war that's going on. We humans, especially those of us who disbelieve in spiritual influence, live in a totally obscure state. Hey, man. We sensely scarce a thousandth of the issues over which the evil spirits and angels are fighting, yet we and our eternal salvation are the whole point. And we also provide the resources. What is inside us supplies both the ammunition with which the combatants fight and the issues over what which they fight. I have been allowed to know for certain this is how the case stands. I have heard the fighting, perceived the influence, and seen the spirits and angels. I have also spoken with them about the fight during and after it." So, like, they're battling to try to get control of his mind and heart, and he's like, so how's this going, guys? Is this better than the the one last week? This was something, obviously, that was difficult for him to get used to, but once he did, it gave him tremendous insight into why his mind was like it was. Why did he get the thoughts he got? Why did he get the feelings he got? Why did he have self-destructive tendencies? Why did he have positive tendencies? Where did it all come from? This, this blew open his understanding of, of psychology and, and the human mind, and really gave him this piercing insight and ability to navigate this psyche. And then hopefully we can pick out some of the things he found and see if we can apply them. Again, sounds dramatic, but it's because we're right in this equilibrium between heaven and hell, we don't get crushed by either side. We just get this influence that we can kind of work with and really, in the end, choose which direction uh, we want to give our, you know, energy towards. So that's just like flying through these topics, right? As I mentioned, if you want to look at any of these in-depth We'll throw you a bone here. We've got a bunch of episodes relating to all these topics. If you want to know more about the place we first wake up in, in the afterlife, click here for the, our episode called The World of Spirits. If you want to know more about that movement principle and getting places and being sorted and everything like that, check out our show, How to Travel in the Afterlife. we got Heaven and Hell for you here. A day in the life of an angel tells you about the, the minutia of heavenly existence. And then the good thing about hell explains how hell is not this conscious punishment, but it's actually something a lot more, a lot more humane and actually the best case scenario uh, uh, for those who are choosing it. So then we also have how to deal with evil spirits, if you want a little more insight into the struggle of the mind, and then finally spiritual marriage, which is about survival of relationships, particularly the marriage relationship. So there you go, take a look at all that stuff, um, and uh, we'll see, you know, how it works for you. If you're still here with me, let's go on and and check out the the next section.
2: In my job as a good worker bee, I turn up to start work at the hive for 845. My role in the hive is to take calls for people needing assistance. However, like the angels code, we cannot assist until a person consents. Although as ever, there are exceptions. Friends and family can also call to request help for their nearest and dearest, like a prayer, but that person has to agree to engage. Using the knowledge and connections I have, I try to provide the support requested and accepted as best as I can. I am one of the hundreds of thousands of angels in training, here to help as I am able. With the teachings of Swedenborg, I try to ensure that the support I provide is done with love and not as a chore.
0: Yeah, so maybe we might as well uh, wade into the topic of God here. First I want to say love that video. We just started doing this thing where we ask for submitted videos, How Does Swedenborg Affecting Your Life? We got that awesome poem. Thank you so much for it. Any of you can email it into offtheleft.gmail.com, and uh, we, we want to hear from you as well, because no use in us spreading this information if it's not actually having a positive impact on people, right? Alright, so God, you want to talk about God? Swedenborg was able to get not just the feeling of what it's like to be affected by God, but also to record details of how God works, what God is looking for, what God is trying to do, um, some of the personality aspects of God, and some of the, the, the essence or underlying characteristics of God. So, rather than me try to lay it out... Uh, by talking more, it's probably already getting tough uh, for you guys. Let's see a little... this is an overview, flyover, of some key points about God from Swedenborg's writings. Did you notice, about the middle, it said, God is the essential person? Which is perhaps the least intuitive to interpret of all of those, but what it means essentially is God is not just these attributes, but God is also a person, somebody that we can relate to, and actually, we are people because God is, that we are sort of echoes and the The outermost vibrations of God, so that we're we're copies of God, not like we're making God in our own image, you know, so that's just a little bit about the the basics, but Swedenborg did have some very specific details about God, even down to what we're going to investigate here, which is like I said, almost a personality trait that God is all accepting. God is never mad at us. This is True Christianity 56, where Swedenborg is actually on the offensive against people in his day who were teaching that God is furious with us. He says, from these few points, you can see how insane people are who think that God can condemn anyone, curse anyone, throw anyone into hell, predestine anyone's soul to eternal death, avenge wrongs, or rage against or punish anyone. People are even more insane if they actually believe this, let alone teach it. In reality, God cannot turn away from us, or even look at us with a frown. To do any such thing would be against His essence, and what is against His essence is against Himself." So there's not like, you sinned and so I'm angry at you, I'm not going to be angry when you're done sinning, but for now, you can't trigger God. It's not that God isn't going to work with exquisite skill and wisdom to remove everything harmful and wants us to go to the best possible. version of ourselves that we can be, but he's not gonna get mad at us along the way or or at the people we wish he would get mad at for what they've done. It's just not what a divine, omniscient, loving, wise being does. Uh, And this doesn't throw anyone into hell. The hell that Swedenborg describes is one of our own choice. We go there because we love to go there. And again, watch our other episode, The Good Thing About Hell, for more about that. Also, there's uh, within God room for and encouragement of not just one religion, but many different religions. That Swedenborg didn't see the many different phases of the world as a problem, he actually saw that as a strength, that actually having people all approaching what's good from those different paths makes the human race healthier, stronger. And he gives a little summary of that, uh, based, using the analogy of a human body and how it needs a diversity of parts to work together so this is divine providence number 326.
2: we know that there are within us not only the parts formed as organs from blood vessels and nerve fibers the forms we call our viscera there are also skin membranes tendons cartilage bones nails and teeth they are less intensely alive than the organic forms which they serve as ligaments coverings and supports If there are to be all these elements in that heavenly person who is heaven, it cannot be made up of the people of one religion only. It needs people from many religions, so all the people who make these two universal principles of the church central to their own lives have a place in that heavenly person, that is, in heaven. They enjoy the happiness that suits their own nature.
0: And that comparison, the heavenly person, the comparison of the, the interconnectedness of the human body and its systems as a metaphor for the interconnectedness of heaven and the potential of the human race, is something all over Swedenborg, and we'll give you a link to it at the end of this section of this, but let's go further into some specifics about God. That was kind of how God feels about us, but let's look at how God acts with us, or works with us. And this is under a heading uh, that Swedenborg calls Divine Providence, or, and to get a definition straight from the source of what Divine Providence is, let's look in his book, Divine Providence number one, right at the beginning. Again, click it, free download if you want to read more about it. Divine Providence is the way the Lord's divine love and wisdom govern us. Essentially, this is how this omniscient, infinite, Source of all life that is the interconnection between all things that we learned about before. This is how that being with God's love and wisdom comes in and interacts with the trajectory of our lives and interacts with our hearts and minds and gently tries to pull us toward what's going to be the best for us if we accept it. And here's more specifics on how divine providence works. How does God? interact with life. Wouldn't you want to know? Here it is. This is what Swedenborg says about it. He says, divine providence, first of all, the goal is heaven. That's what providence is working for all the time, is to get you into a heavenly state of mind and get everyone into a compatible heavenly state of mind, trying to develop these qualities in you. And the second is related. Providence focuses on what is infinite, and eternal. Meaning that the, what really matters is what lasts, and what's going to last forever. If there's something that you want, but it's actually going to lead you away from the good path, uh, even though it'll make you happy in the short term, providence is not trying to pull you towards that. Providence is looking specifically at developing the things inside you that are going to lead you to this, this permanent love. It may or may not involve you getting the money or the status that you want those things could be harmful or helpful, depending what it's really concerned with is is what matters deep down and what is going to stay when we uh, wake up in the spiritual world and have left this whole thing behind. Third, we should act in freedom in accord with reason. We're not. We're never going to have God autopiloting our life, even though God is working in us and with us. We use our rationality and our freedom to choose, go after what we believe is true and right, and within that within that dynamic, within those abilities, that's where Providence is working. It's working in partnership with us if through what seems to be just our own free will. So we have to be working at it. We can't just, okay, move me where you want to move me. Even though that would be nice at times, I feel like, but ain't the way the game is played. We can't be compelled. That's the next point. God is never going to force us or anyone else to believe anything or to love anything. And and we can't do it to other people. We can try. You can get people for a little while to do it, but it won't stay. And Providence knows that. So Providence sets things up so that we in freedom can choose that stuff if it's what we want to do. If you're looking for it, you're probably not going to find it. I mean, the next bullet point is that Providence cannot be felt. Rarely, if ever, are you going to understand what it's doing right now in your life, even though, according to Swedenborg, It's running everything, even like how I'm saying these things right now, any little stumbles I've had during this show, your reactions, if your internet is slow, all that somehow is providence, but we don't know how. Look, he he does say that looking back on your life, you can... Um, at times get a sense of oh, I do realize now that because that happened, this happened, now this has happened, perhaps that was providence, but we're never going to fully be able to read it as it happens and that's part of the part of it because we're supposed to go forward um without trying to know the plan and mastermind it or, or otherwise the temptation to work in opposition to it would be too great and for other reasons, so it can't be felt would be nice again would be nice sometimes if we could feel it, but We gotta trust that that's the right way. We're not charged with evil. I mean, God is not interested in condemning us, but is interested in healing and working to uh, just get you to let go of what's hurting you, and get you to realize that it is hurting you. uh, And hurting other people, of course, which is sort of the same thing when you get down to it, because, you know, it's not like you can be hurting other people and not hurting yourself spiritually. And then finally, anyone can be reformed. It is never too late for you. If you're here, you're still working, and and God can work in any situation. So those are the basics of Divine Providence. If you wanted more explanation on those, those are actually adaptations of chapter headings from that book. So as I said, download it. You can read through that part by part. But in case that was too much words, if we're really going to deal with a topic as expansive and as immersive and as as potent as what we're dealing with now, we got to use a higher form of communication than just words. And of course, I'm talking about a line graph. So let's see. This is life, right? There's us. That little arrow line thingy is our happiness or what we perceive as how well things are going. You know, like oh, things are good. Oh no, now this thing happened and I'm at a low point. Oh, I just got this job or something. Now it's up. Oh, now this tragedy happened. It's down. This person doesn't like me. It's down. Oh, I'm not cool. It's down or it's up. And then I, did, am I lower now than where I started? Has life all been downhill? Swedenborg says, For the most part unseen, providence is continually moving us up. It may not be moving our level of temporary time-based satisfaction up and down, but through everything that happens to us, through every high and every low, through everything that hurts, everything that is confusing, through everything that is joyful and good, we are being taught and we are being healed and we are being brought upwards. We are being implanted with the seeds of what's infinite and eternal. We are um, gaining in the Spirit, even if we sometimes lose on the external. So outside of time, you know, this stuff that's going to stay. Swedenborg describes it as, our life is like if you walked by a construction site and you didn't know what was going to happen, you might just think, this is a mess. There's a pile of lumber there, there's some bricks there, there's this big hole in the ground. This is a total mess. Life can feel like that, but God sees our lives like the architect, the house that is going to be built, and we just gotta to try to figure out a way to have some kind of trust that, okay, life is being built, the house is being built, even if it doesn't feel like, which is not easy, it's not like I can uh, do that on command, but every once in a while it kicks in, and it, the more we work towards that, the more we can really get some psychological benefits from it. Swedenborg describes these in Secrets of Heaven 2892. He says, is describing people who have really more and more taken this principle to heart. Some people live good lives and believe that the Lord governs the universe, that He alone is the source of all the good embraced by love and charity, and all the truth espoused by faith, that life itself comes from Him, and consequently that from Him we live, move, and have our being. The condition of these people is such that they can receive the gift of heavenly freedom, and peace too. Because under these circumstances they trust only in the Lord and do not let anything else bother them. They are positive that under his care, and this is really the the crux of it, everything leads forever toward what is good, blessed, and happy for them. People who believe they control their own lives, though, constantly feel troubled. Isn't that the rest of it? The more you feel like you're responsible for things, the more trouble... Uh, Not not that you're responsible for things, but that you're the only one pulling for yourself. They constantly become embroiled in their appetites, in worries about the future, and so in many forms of anxiety. Because of their belief, evil cravings and distorted convictions also cling to them. That's the dark side of the ego, the more that we feel like there's nothing else out there it's just me and oh no but then when it can be fine when everything's going right but it but it's very fragile because as soon as things start to go wrong we don't have a footing and we begin to get upset and even you know you think about the epitome of it is in the movie like some some mobster guy right where he made it to the top but he knows he's always got to watch his back because he could fall off someone could nab him at any point that's the opposite of this trust in divine providence, that the divine is looking to give us this assurance that I'm taking care of everything, we're riding the, the Oh, it's hard to do that right direction. We're riding the blue arrow up, you know, into the tip top of the graph. Good metaphor. And, and so that's what's happening, alright? That's it. That's, that's all the time we have to spend talking about God and the way God guides us. If you want to hear more, here's some related episodes for you. We'll always have these, don't you worry about it. You want to know what God looks like? right here, click that one. If you want to go further into that idea of different religions actually strengthening heaven, we did a whole episode on that. If you'd like to hear a little bit about, yes, the limitations of God in the divine design, click What God Can't Do, Why Bad Things Happen, is a in-depth look at providence and the problem of evil. The infinite in you is this balance between what's God doing, what are we doing, who does what part. And then finally, we we didn't even have time to get to Jesus. Like, How does Jesus Christ fit in? Is Jesus God? Is there some difference? What's going on here? Swedenborg had a lot to say about that. I'd start with our episode, Why Jesus Was Born, if you're interested in that. All right, so there, we got a couple of things down and we got to move on. That's just the nature of it. And we're going to look now at some of the universal symbolism behind everything in part four. And this is a break. This is a break from things uh, because, you know, you could say, oh yeah, the afterlife. Everybody wonders about the afterlife. God, everybody wonders. Bon about... Like, who asked about this? <laughs> but this is as present in Swedenborg's works, and if he's right, as present in life as anything else is, and, and could even have a greater potential for opening up uh, the mind and the, the pathways to everything good than any other uh, concept that he covers. So what is a correspondence? I said at the end of the last section, and I meant it, that it's the universal symbolism available in everything. It's sort of the language of God that's written into everything that we encounter, and it's the means of connection between the spiritual worlds and the physical world. So it all sounds confusing and like a bunch of fluff right now, but let's get really, really tangible with it. This is from Secrets of Heaven 2988. And we're going to first confuse you and then try to clear it up, and you'll see this is a pattern in this section. To gain some idea of representations and correspondences, simply reflect on the activity of the mind, and specifically the workings of thought and will, or thoughts and feelings. These usually shine brightly from our face, lying openly visible in the expression there. For example, you may have a look of deep boredom as you're sitting there looking at your computer right now. Our emotions gleam more brightly than anything else, the deeper ones radiating from and glowing in our eyes. When our facial features act in unison with our mental processes, they are said to correspond. And are correspondences. So when what's in your mind shows up on your face. Our actual facial expressions represent mental activity and are representations. The case is the same with the effects of bodily movement and also with any action the muscles produce. Everyone recognizes that our thoughts and intentions determine them. The movements and actions of the body represent those of the mind in our representations. If they harmonize, they are correspondences." So that might sound like a lot of words in a row, but let's take a really cute example of that. (laughs) So let's say you got this little baby. When the baby does that, smiling and laughing, you know that that means that baby is happy, right? is feeling joy. The actual face move in that movement, that's not joy. That's just muscles contracting and, and you know, skin reacting. Right? But we know it's an indicator of this psychological thing called joy. And Swedenborg would say that's a spiritual thing. He says the conscious part of you is a spiritual thing interacting with the physical part of you, which is your body. So when a baby feels happy, and a smile shows up. That smile is a that's cor- a correspondence because you have an internal and an external working in unison. And babies don't know how to fake a smile, right? So that th- if if I smiled but didn't really mean it, like uh, I'm having fun, you know, that's not a correspondence. But if I'm really happy and I really smile, my my external is showing what my internal is doing. That is correspondence. It's the the spiritual and the physical working together. And so we can easily read the smile as an indicator of happiness. Now, that human facial expressions are not the only place a correspondent shows up. They show up everywhere in the world around us. Correspondences are bound in nature, in human-created things, in all kinds of things. Let's read a little bit on it first. Heaven and Hell 112. Uh, Swedenborg says that the universe has been so created and formed by the divine. Okay, so we cleared it up, now we're going to reconfuse you, ready? The universe has been so created and formed by the divine that functions can clothe themselves in materials that enable them to present themselves in act or in results, first in heaven and then in this world, and so step by step all the way to the lowest things in nature lowest meaning outermost, not like th- they're not cool. We can see from this that the correspondence of natural phenomena with spiritual ones, or of the world with heaven, takes place through functions, and that the functions are what unite them. We can also see that the forms that clothe the functions are correspondences, and unions to the extent that they are the forms of of the functions. Okay, we're all confused again. I'm gonna we'll illustrate it. We'll take a walk actually out in the world and illustrate this for you. But just remember that we're talking about the functions. So what things do is what corresponds. Alright, let's take examples. Let's take tangibles. So let's say we're walking along up a bridge, it's in the woods, everything is beautiful, and we're suddenly struck by the notion, hey man. I'd love to learn more about spiritual reality through looking around. Well, we might invest a moment or two in taking a look over the edge of the bridge to our left, because there's a stream down there. We're looking at water, and Swedenborg says water corresponds to truth, meaning what water does for the physical, truth does for the spiritual. The water in the physical world can wash us, can quench our thirst, can clean us, can keep things moving, truth does that in the spirit, so the more we learn about water, the more we learn about truth. But it's not just mineral. Let's look at this tree, things that grow. The tree can show us about spiritual growth because it is a three-dimensional living representation. The way it moves from a seed to a shoot to fruits is like the way we move from ideas to actions. If that's not good enough, let's look at God not that the sun is God, but that the sun performs the role for the physical world that God does for the spiritual world. The sun's heat and light make pretty much all this life you see possible. And Swedenborg is saying in the same way God's love and wisdom make our spiritual life possible. It's not just, uh, it's it's kind of an outer layer to the spiritual world, that there are actual spiritual realities There's this truth in the spiritual world, and that is the essence of water here. So water is a reaction to truth, like a smile is a reaction to happiness, which is a complex concept, but the more you turn it over in their mind, the more it starts to make sense. So there are containers for this, but they can also be, these correspondences can be a way that we can learn, they can be a teaching tool. This is Secrets of Heaven 2992, Um, and this is a a story Sweet tells about a spiritual encounter where he was learning from physical things about spiritual things and seeing how that knowledge passes. He says, A great deal of experience has enabled me to see that nothing exists in the natural world and its three kingdoms that does not represent something in the spiritual world, or that does not have something in the spiritual world to which it corresponds. Among many other experiences, this one also illustrated the point. There have been times when I talked about the organs of the body and traced their links with each other from those in the head to those in the chest and on into those of the abdomen. Some of those times the angels above me, so he's got angels around, led my thoughts through the spiritual qualities to which the organs corresponded. They did not, they did, this they did without making a single mistake. They were not thinking at all about the physical organs I was considering, but only about the spiritual qualities to which the organs corresponded, that their spiritual knowledge teaches them all there is to know about the body even the most deeply hidden mysteries, which cannot possibly come to our own knowledge. In fact, they know all about everything in the whole universe, which is a pretty good subset of knowledge. If you could only know a certain thing, how about it's all about everything in the whole universe? And how do they know it? It's through correspondences, It's because all knowledge is written into everything. Everything is telling us about everything else. There's this, there's this whole system in there, and it actually, this was intended to be a way for for heaven to reach us. And we're gonna look at how that plays out in our next section, Correspondences in the Word. And now the Word is a term that Swedenborg uses to describe what most of us call the Bible. And he's not the only one who uses that term. But to him, the Bible was of utmost importance, but it can be very confusing in how it's written and everything, and Correspondences is actually the key to understanding why it's a revelation at all. But before we get into that, let's back up and look at, as described by Swedenborg, the history of Revelation on our planet. Because, you know, the Bible wasn't always it. Uh, Back in the beginning, a lot of information on this chart. Let's look at our top row here. Back in the beginning of humanity, you know, in the early stages of human uh, civilization, or or even pre-civilization, there was direct revelation, according to Swedenborg. Meaning, there was open communication with the afterlife, open communication with God. We just learned through experiencing. The, The revelation was heaven, was nature, and everything was looking towards love. But then, humanity started to fall away from this idyllic state and moved into where the, the revelation was now the form of these correspondences. So you see some paintings there, people would, would write in these symbols, Swedenborg says that Egyptian hieroglyphics were spawned out of this, and there was a source of revelation which he called the ancient word, which we don't know exactly what that was. Some of it at least was text, there could have been other things in there, songs and things like that, but he mentions it a few times, but it doesn't go into too much detail. And here we're looking more at knowledge. As we grew a little more um, temperamental, people started to make war with each other, cause all kinds of problems, we got into the Revelation being more ritual-based. So you would see things like, in the Old Testament of the Bible, rituals meant a lot. Like, it was a tabernacle just so. Um, Did did you wash yourself this many times? Action was what mattered, because there was this correspondence with those, and that was the tightest link we could have. Swedenborg contends that Jesus Christ, when He came, was a living revelation. And that that was, uh, you know, the New Testament was then showing us, through correspondence, a connection with God. But he takes it even farther, saying, in the future, Humanity is going to be able to come through the knowledge of correspondence into the inner meaning of the text of the Bible, and from that, through that roundabout way, reconnect with heaven and reconnect with love. He says that that's how the whole thing works, all right? So there's a chart, you can come back to it, pause it, but really, there's not going to be a test at the end of this, you know. It, It takes time to learn it all. I was thinking like we're trying to do a Swedenborg 101, but everything gets so heavy so fast. It's just the nature of Swedenborg, which is good, Because otherwise, there'd be no reason for us to do a show, and then, like, what would I do all day, right? Okay, so here's Swedenborg talking about uh, the correspondences in the Bible. This is from his book, Secrets of Heaven. And actually, Secrets of Heaven is this indexing of the meaning of the Bible, starting in Genesis. So here's how he kicked the whole thing off. The word contains secrets of heaven, and every single aspect of it has to do with the Lord Is heaven, the church, faith, and all the tenets of faith, but not a single person sees this in the letter. The truth is, however, that every part of the Old Testament holds an inner message, except at a very few points those inner depths never show on the surface. But each and every detail down to the smallest, even down to the tiniest jot, enfolds and symbolizes spiritual and heavenly matters." And even there you see him saying, the church, faith, and you might think, well, what do I care about? that stuff, if you don't consider yourself particularly churchy. But again, this is Swedenborg using those terms in a way it's different than the, uh, than the common meaning. When he talks about church, he's talking about a state of mind and heart. When he's talking about faith, he's talking about the love of the truth. And you gotta, That's why you've got to give Swedenborg a chance initially, because you'll think he's saying something different, but when you find out what he's really saying, when you understand his uh, self-consistent worldview, everything gets a lot cooler. Or that was the progress for me anyway. So what does that mean though? What does it mean that the the Bible holds correspondential secrets in it? What's that all about? How would that work? Well, we can give you an example. We actually did a Swedenborg Minute short clip about the inner... this is a, this is just like a summary of a summary of a summary. We're going to fly through this here, but here's, a, here's a, a few seconds on what the creation story means on an interior level, through correspondences, And the the interior level is always relevant to each one of us in all of our lives. It's not just about history. So here's the inner sense of the creation story. This is the story of our creation, as we grow from the formless void of self-centeredness and materialism to the living, thriving mindset of empathy and love. For us, a division first occurs when we begin to realize that some things in our lives are helpful and others are destructive. We hit struggles, and in our distress begin to act a little more sensitively, more humbly, small, slow-growing acts of kindness that are like grass and shrubs. But once that compassion and understanding begin to shine inside us, true ideas, feelings of love, acts of altruism spring out and multiply, pictured by the fish, the birds, the animals, all of which inhabit the lands and seas in us. When it's completed, God rests, not on a bed somewhere, but in us, and in the love we now allow to flow through to others. And it might seem arbitrary. It might seem like you're just assigning meaning to that, but if you go into Swedenborg's writing about it, you'll see a very, very um, uh, consistent, repeatable system where he said this means this because of this. This means this because of this. If you want to give it a shot, and if you do, and you start to dig into it, you start to see it explains everything that's hard about the Bible. Meaning, why does it seem like God is angry? Why is there war? Why are these? Why is it weird at times? There, the correspondential explanation flips that into, oh, this is, this is like what I thought I didn't like, now I like. Or that was my experience. You can see uh, if it's yours. If you don't want to go into <laughs> Nature or the Bible and try to look for correspondences, there's one area where you're just not going to be able to avoid them, and that is dreams. Swedenborg says that we, every night, encounter correspondences in our dreams. And he encountered correspondences before he even really knew what they were through his own dreams. So we, we have got ourselves a translator of Swedenborg's works to talk a little bit about what Swedenborg uh, did early on in his spiritual awakening, cataloging his dreams. In
3: 1743, when Swedenborg was beginning to have these spiritual experiences more and more. He started keeping a journal of his own dreams, which become very vivid and were full of meaning for him. Uh, they've been published under the title of Swedenborg's Journal of Dreams, also under the title of Swedenborg's Dream Diary, and you can find them with various commentary on on what these dreams might mean, given the fact that we now know how his life went after he wrote this all down. In this journal of dreams, he writes down the dreams that he has in great detail. And then he writes down what he thinks they meant for him in his life. He sees meaning and significance in the things that happen and in the symbols, the images. So for instance, a dog, there's a dog that shows up in his dreams. And he often equates that with some sense of pride in his own intelligence and his own wonderfulness. And this is kind of a precursor to Um, this concept of correspondences and symbolism that permeates his later works.
0: Let's take a look at a little bit of this permeation. This is one of his later works, uh, actually it's his Journal of Spiritual Experiences, which he started keeping after this dream journal and continued for for years and years and years. So this is entry 4404, where he describes a little dream episode. Again, I dreamed a dream, but an ordinary one, as others do. Someone spoke with me, and when I awoke I told all of it from beginning to end. The angels said that it coincided completely, so angels around him again, with everything they had discussed among themselves. This is after he'd woken up, he's talking to these angels. Not that they were the same things as were in my dream, for the thoughts of their speech were turned entirely into different, into entirely different things, so that they were figurative and symbolic. Indeed so were all the details, so that there was nothing that did not coincide. So you get it now? Makes it, no? Okay. It's still too confusing. We laid it out in a little with a little more clarity in one of our Swedenborg Minutes. So let's take a look at one more of those. So, Swedenborg was just a normal guy. He was walking around doing stuff, publishing scientific findings, then suddenly he became viscerally aware of a spiritual world that affects everything in our lives. This included insight into the machine that creates these weird, sometimes-touching, sometimes-arbitrary, sometimes-disturbing night trips that we call dreams. He wrote that at times the angels around him would have conversations, and that the concepts that they were talking about would show up in his dreams. But it would be tailored to him specifically, because the concepts would come to him, but they'd manifest in his dream based on how he understood them, and the things in his own memory that were related to them. For example, there was a guy that Swedenborg knew who seemed kind of superficial, based on what Swedenborg had seen of him. So that night at one point, the angels were talking about superficial mindsets, so that got picked up by Swedenborg's dream brain, reminded him of that guy, and then bam, that guy showed up in his dream. Swedenborg also wrote that some dreams come from heaven, and are revelatory and inspiring, while some are induced by hostile spirits that are meant to mislead or frighten you, while others are just the spiritual world randomly messing around. What is that randomly messing around? Is that some kind of millennial phrase? Well, I mean, Swedenborg phrases it amounts to little more than games. So they're really, not everything is laden with meaning, or, or at least meaning that we can get at. Um, Swedenborg's dream interpretation, which was way ahead of his time, may have had an influence on modern dream interpretation, or at least uh, the big, the heavy hitters in that area. For instance, Carl Jung, he wrote that, uh, this is uh, during a, a crisis of his, and I'm about to butcher some names. I dug up Eschenmayer, Passavant, Justinas Kerner, and Horace, and read seven volumes of Swedenborg. That's a lot. And this was in the, the summer before he began writing his Red Book. Uh, so it was a very significant time uh, in his life. So there you go correspondences. We introduced you to it. We flew you through it. Um, Hopefully it's intrigued you at least to try to learn more about it. Here's our episodes you can check out. Uh, You can, if you want to look more into this correspondence of the sun that I was talking about, check out what light and heat can tell you about God. Swedenborg says that the garden is is like a full correspondence with the human mind. You can look there at what that means. The shape of heaven gets into this universal human. I said that I would give you a link to it. Here it is if you want to know what the human form has to do with heaven. If you want to dig more into how does the Bible work, what the Bible is, this is our dreams episode, and there's a specific story from the Bible detail by detail if you're into all that. all right, we're getting close. There's one more area, and it's really the functional area. How how do we act on all this stuff Swedenborg is telling about us? We're gonna look at that in part five. Yeah, this, I I don't want to say this is where the rubber meets the road, because that's cheesy. Okay, I'm going to say it. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is, the reason he was writing the whole thing was to give us knowledge and all that, but it was so that we could apply it and go through the process, so that we could aid the divine providence that I was talking about before. You know how, you know, right, right, so cleanse your palate, We've just dumped a ton of information on you in uh, four sections, now we're on to a whole new section, a whole new concept, but there's a little segue in here, which is that we were talking about correspondences, or things in the physical world representing spiritual things. These processes here you know, the the, the metamorphosis of a caterpillar or the rising of the sun, these, Swedenborg says, are correspondences with our spiritual growth. We can learn things from them, from the details of them, about it. But if you can't quite read Caterpillar, Swedenborg does spell it out in words. We're going to take a look at his book, New Jerusalem, this is Numbers 160 and 161. We're going to look at the steps of repentance, reformation, and regeneration. Because this is how you do spiritual growth, according to him. If... Okay, you're going to find very Christian language here. We wanted to include it to show the kind of language you may bump into with Swedenborg. If we want to be saved, we must confess our sins and repent. Confessing sins is to recognize things that are evil, see them within ourselves, acknowledge them, accept that we are at fault, and condemn ourselves because of them. And uh uh-oh. Okay. Condemnation warning. I mean, isn't this, like, the problem with religion as it goes around trying to make us feel bad about ourselves? I want to say that, again, if you lo- read Swedenborg as a whole, you're going to understand that he doesn't mean make ourselves feel horrible. He's speaking from experience here. Experience and his—he had his own stuff to look at. He's passionate about this. He's saying, you know, we got—you gotta label something that's bad as bad. Don't just excuse it because it's yours. He had a lot of work to do. He, as we mentioned before, he had a lot of pride. He had a lot of flaws when his spiritual awakening began. And because he saw how liberating it can be to free yourself from these evil things, this is his enthusiasm for the process. All right. So when this is done in the presence of God it is confessing our sins. Meaning, you you say it, you identify it before yourself in the higher power. After we have confessed our sins in this way and have prayed for forgiveness with a humble heart, repenting is to stop doing them and to lead a new life that follows the principles of caring and faith. Essentially, don't be mean, be nice. That's what it comes down to. And that was an excerpt from New Jerusalem, uh, which this translation is just about to come out. If you're watching this a month from now, go to Swedenborg.com. You can probably download that book for free. That's a good little summary. That's, that book is kind of doing what this episode does, which is trying to summarize all his basic teachings. But he wrote this, you know, because he couldn't make videos back at the time. All right, we're going to move on from spiritual... from... from. oh, no, wait, wait, wait. there's a couple... I, I only said one of the points. We got two other points to get to. We did repentance, there's Reformation and Regeneration, so what a couple of more R words, what do those mean? This is an explanation of those, and this is why Swedenborg is so adamant that we get through the first thing, the identifying evils, because there's this huge payoff. This is True Christianity 571. There are two states that we all inevitably enter into and go through if we are to turn from an earthly person into a spiritual person. The first state is called Reformation, the second is called Regeneration. In the first state, we look from our earthly self toward having a spiritual self. Being spiritual is what we long for. In the second state, we become someone who is both spiritual and earthly. The first state is brought about by truths. These have to be truths related to faith, so we learn things. We learn that there is a better way. Through these truths, we aim to develop goodwill, or love towards others. The second state is brought about by good actions that come from goodwill. Through these actions, we come more deeply into the truths of faith. To put it another way, the first state is a state of thought that occurs in our intellect. The second state is a state of love that occurs in our will. So first we change our mind, and then that changes the heart. So moving on. As the second state begins and progresses, and this is the payoff, a change takes place in our minds. There is a reversal because then the love in our will flows into our intellect and leads and drives it to think in agreement and in harmony with what we love. So we're no longer kind of forcing ourselves to think in a certain way. You know, our feelings just just come up right. As good actions that come from love take on a primary role, the truths related to faith are relegated to a secondary role. We become spiritual and are a new creation. Then our actions come from goodwill, and our words come from faith. We develop a sense of the goodness that comes from goodwill, and a perception of the truth that is related to faith, and we are in the Lord and in a state of peace. In brief, we are reborn. So if you... a lot of clutter before that state of peace. That's what you're getting to. A state where love comes naturally. That's where you're headed. And this is the the steps to get there. Again, there's more in in that book and elsewhere about that if you're interested. Um, In summary, those three steps, uh, you can just look at them like this. So you have step one. Uh, and we have a diagram of this for you, again, because diagrams rock. Step one, repentance, identifying harmful tendencies in ourselves, resisting them, turning to God for help. Step two, reformation, learning how to live a heavenly life and making efforts to apply it. Step three, regeneration, the Lord gives us heavenly feelings, motivations, and goals. Step three is really when we've opened the door and, and the divine is in there, and then life is much less of a struggle there, so that's the end game, that's why it's worth getting into this. And really, if we're looking at the goal of that, the way to get there, you saw in the third stage he said it's about good actions take to take the, take the primary role, well, good actions doing constructive things is actually a central tenet of everything. This this next section, which we're going to call usefulness, really could have appeared under most of these headings, because it's at the core of everything. Uh, Swedenborg even goes as far as to say, uh, in Divine Love and Wisdom 327, uh, that, that usefulness is essential. Nothing can arise from God the Creator that is not useful. And useful meaning it can accomplish something, it can do something for someone. It can do a constructive thing. That's, that's the point. And it, he goes on further to describe the essence of that in True Christianity 67. Without usefulness as a third party, love and wisdom would be as unreal as the heat and light of the sun would be if they had no effect on people, animals, and plants. That heat and that light become real by flowing into things and having an effect on them. So he's using a metaphor to describe it. I'll use a metaphor. Rather than heat and light, though, I'd like to use baby keys. Now these baby keys are a picture of love, wisdom, and use together. The love is this desire to help little kids and parents who are trying to manage those little kids by creating an object that's going to be useful. The wisdom is knowing, oh, you know what? Babies like keys and they want to chew on keys and they want to stick them in their mouth and they want to push buttons on them, which is not necessarily that sanitary and can cause problems if you have a car alarm, right? But babies want the real thing pretty much. So this person knew, hey, I'm going to design keys that like jingle like real keys that have metal, but they're not jagged. And hey, you can even make little sounds without driving the neighbors insane. So they put it together. If they just had that desire and those, those ideas, but never made this, never would've done anything. So thanks, whoever made this, Jeremy or um, Lola or whatever your name was, appreciate you putting that love and wisdom into action. Alright, an, for an angelic perspective on this, let's look at True Christianity 736. This is Swedenborg hearing from angels about it. The angels looking down from heaven said that heaven is a kingdom of useful functions. The Lord loves everyone and wants us all to have what is good. What is good is being useful, because the Lord does good and useful things indirectly, here through angels and in the world through people. He gives those who are performing useful functions a love for being useful, and also a reward for being useful, which is inner bliss. And this inner bliss is eternal happiness, which, eternal happiness doesn't sound that bad. Right? Well, that's something you'd probably want to go for. The seed of eternal happiness. If you've had that feeling of, we're on a team together and we're working for something that you really believe in, have you ever had that? Or you're working on a project because you're thinking about the good, that that, the way that's going to make a particular person or a group of people feel, that is the, the little beginnings of the, the greatest possible joy. It might not feel like that at the time, but, but that's where it's headed. And that can be in your occupation, that can be in your interpersonal relationships. I am doing something that is making a positive difference. That is that is the core of, of heaven. When we work together, we can get this sense of heaven. We're working for a common goal, and that's really sort of what, what heaven is. Hey, hey, let's end with a small one, since I've been giving you a lot of information. Let's just do the, the purpose of creation. How about it? Swedenborg just spells it out. Here's what the point of life is. This is Divine Providence 27, subsection 2. Since heaven comes from the human race then, and since heaven is living with the Lord forever, it follows that this was the Lord's goal for creation. The Lord did not create the universe for His own sake, but for the sake of people He would be with in heaven. By its very nature, spiritual love wants to share what it has with others, and to the extent that it can do so, it is totally present, experiencing its peace and bliss. Spiritual love gets this quality from the Lord's divine love, which is like this in infinite measure. It then follows that divine love and therefore divine providence has the goal of a heaven made up of people who have become angels and who are becoming angels, people with whom it can share all the bliss and joy of love and wisdom, giving them these blessings from the Lord's own presence within them. He cannot help doing this because His image and likeness is in us from creation. If you remember back to our fan video. She was talking about being an angel in training, like the worker bee. So she's like working on the purpose of creation, which is awesome. Here's another quick take on it. This is more on the, the role that we can play in this connection. This is from Swedenborg's Divine Love and Wisdom
2: 170. The grand purpose, or the purpose of all elements of creation, is an eternal union of the Creator with the created universe this does not happen unless there are subjects in which his divinity can be at home, so to speak, subjects in which it can dwell and abide. For these subjects to be his dwellings and homes, they must be receptive of his love and wisdom, apparently of their own accord, subjects who will with apparent autonomy raise themselves toward their creator and unite themselves with him. In the absence of this reciprocity, there is no union. We are those subjects, people who can raise themselves and unite with apparent autonomy. Through this union, the Lord is present in every work he has created.
0: And that's, those are the stakes that I'm talking about. Swedenborg may here be giving us detailed instructions on how to get this presence of the divine with us and how to create heaven on earth, and how to solve problems that were previously unsolvable. This is the potential in what he's got. So this is why it's worth us looking through and seeing, you know, is this stuff here? Can it make this difference? And if it can, isn't that that usefulness that we were just talking about? That we can get this out, practice it, learn it, how to do it, and hopefully make the world a better place. So we blew through that stuff too, if you want more episodes on it. As always, actually, this is our episode that talks about how the chemical process of fermentation reflects spiritual growth. There's correspondences for you. Here's how to um, free yourself from the stuff that is blocking up your greatest spiritual potential. If you want to see how God went through this process, check out our episode, The Spiritual Battles of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what it sounds like. Three simple ways to love. Um, This is a way to practice on people in a positive way. So there you go we got you started and you can check out our episodes or you can be downloading Swedenborg's books or getting them in hard copy and reading them yourself but so so how to approach them you know are you just going to you know, open a book up and immediately oh this is this is obviously perfect let's let's get commentary from the spiritual world and Swedenborg on his own writings you want to do that this is spiritual experiences 2185. The Spirit said, for they are now speaking with me, that the things I have written are so crude, so coarse, that they consider nothing inward to be understandable from these words, or the mere meaning of the words. I also realized by a spiritual mental image that it was so, that they were very crude. So I was given to reply that they are only containers into which purer, better, and more inward contents can be poured, as a literal sense or meaning. So that's interesting. And a lot of different people who have read Swedenborg have had different thoughts on the particular nature of his writings. What I take that what I take that quote to mean is like, you know, it may even be that some of the quotes we read for you here today struck you in the wrong way. You didn't like how something was worded. There's no guarantee you're gonna open up Swedenborg and immediately feel like, Oh, this is so awesome. However, sometimes those containers are filled. I mean, there's times when I open it up, and the first thing I read is like, whoa, that seems to make a lot of sense. There's something here. This is like, really cool. So, somehow there's a dynamic. What we really want is for you to explore it for yourself. Go find, you know, what do you find in the words? What do you find in the concepts? And the greatest way to investigate the veracity of them is, are they working for you? Are they bringing positive change? Can we take them and make something good for the human race. Alright, so good luck on it, uh, and if you want to help the human race right now, like and subscribe. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it's helping the human race, but it's helping our channel. It helps us get this out. Who knows, maybe this particular episode would be the beginning of a cool journey for someone, so the more you like and subscribe, the more this goes out into the world. Uh, we are going to get to your questions in just one moment, but first, uh, we're a non So we can only make stuff like this with buttons like these uh, if we get people supporting what we do. So here's a little bit on our philosophy and how you can help.
3: We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone,
0: anytime they need them. That's why we offer Swedenborg's books as free downloads on Swedenborg.com and we produce this show and other content on our Off the Left Eye YouTube channel with no paywall or ads. The only way to keep this up, though, is for those of you who like what we're doing and feel comfortable giving to give. If the idea of helping others have easy access
2: to the content we produce feels meaningful to you, please consider supporting this cause with a donation. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins.
0: And if you start, if you do start for some reason watching this show on a regular basis, you're gonna find this dynamic happens every time. We're long. The show is like theoretically an hour long, but it's, oh, we're like 20 minutes long. So the, so then there's like, oh, is there time for questions? But we always do questions anyway. Uh, so we're gonna do that today. I'm gonna take take three questions here at the end. Sorry if we didn't get to yours. Uh, and yeah, and if you if you come upon this later, type out a question, leave it as a comment. We'll try to get to it. But let's see what's been on your mind as we work through this. Okay, here's question number one. This is from Harlan. Are all Swedenborg's theological stands based on information from angels? Oh, man. I would say... Okay, so this gets a little bit complex as I understand it. Um, He will at times say that he was getting what he wrote not from angels or from spirits, but directly through Revelation. Specifically, he was reading the Bible, but with this informed knowledge of correspondences, and that this was a pathway for God through heaven to, um, for him to tap into that to receive the truth. He will, when he's talking about more sort of anecdotal things, say this was written in the presence of angels, and and they confirmed. Um, so it seems to be that there was sort of a, a confirmation process. He will some some of his writings are stories about angels, and. Uh, and, you know, and, and he will go and he, write what they said to him. So there's some direct learning from angels, but he also at times says he learned through this direct correspondential method. It seems like there was some crossover, but none of it, according to him, was just him kind of thinking about stuff. There was this this direct uh, information that, that he was accessing or, or was given. He's not, uh, you know, according to him, he's not okay, maybe it's this. I think it's this. I'll write it down. You know, the, to him it was direct experience. So it's a great question. That's about my my limits on my knowledge of it. Other people probably know more. Okay, next. Lee, did Swedenborg say anything about the location of heaven and hell in relation to where earth is? Yes, he said heaven and hell are directly present with us, but not... Um, physically. It's not like heaven and hell do not exist within the physical universe, like you could go far enough out into the stars and find them or into the core of the earth, or even like, um, he, he says that they're not linked, like you couldn't even look, you know, at, at a smallest quantum level and find them. I don't know what that, the, the he says they're only linked through correspondences, that you can't travel through this, so they're right with us because the us is a spirit, right? So the spirit in our body is where the physical and the spiritual touch, and so the spiritual part of us is right with heaven and hell. As far as, like, could you ever in the future discover, like, some signs of that link? I don't know. I don't know. He didn't, the science was nowhere near where it is now, um, when he was writing. But the the spiritual world is right here, because we are inhabitants of of both worlds. So hopefully that is, is what you're asking about. Okay, next, this is from Blender. How did Swedenborg feel about his role as spiritual tour guide? Great question. So how, how did it all strike him that this work? Um, I think he loved it. I mean, I think he really developed a passion for it. I think the task was daunting, um, and as we were mentioning in the beginning, he caught a lot of flack for it. You know, people were said he was stupid. There's reports somebody tried to kill him. Um, he, he was put on trial in his in his home country. But then also, there was um, the angst of, uh, nobody's listening, and very few people would, would take him seriously and, and listen, so he was really trying to get it out. Some would, I mean, he, he had positive and negative experiences with that, but none of that really deterred him. That he was. I, mean, I think based on what he'd found and seen, the love that he had experienced and the importance of the mission, like his understanding of the importance of getting this information out, I think he was happier to be doing that than he had ever been on anything else. I wasn't in there. I don't know what the job description for him was like, but that my sense is that it's not like he's like, oh, I wish I never got this, took this on. Maybe he had moments, but overall, he wouldn't have wanted to spend his life any other way. That's me putting words in his mouth, but I can do that because he's not around physically to stop me at this point. All right, thanks everybody so much for watching and hanging out, and if it's your first time watching the show, I'm amazed you stuck through to the end. Thank you really appreciate it. Next week we're going to be back in here and we're going to go from a simple overview to a very in-depth, simple, this wasn't very simple, but a very in-depth look at nothing less than The Last Judgment and what that was in Swedenborg's description of how that happened and has it already happened and what. So that's next week. Hope to see you then. Thanks for hanging.